Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Uh, the great man, Mr. Beethoven, says it is an unforgivable sin, or he said he's been dead. It is an unforgivable sin to play the piano without passion. I want you to ponder whether or not it's an unforgivable sin, perhaps just in a metaphorical sense, whether or not it's a problem if we live our Christian lives without passion. Certainly Romans 12 says that we should be fervent in spirit. Now how you express that will be very different depending on culture and and personality type but whether or not you are uh, urgent and fervent and obviously serious about our Christian life. The book of Hebrews is a tremendous book to help us to stay passionately devoted to Christ or if you've come off the boil and perhaps you can look back to a time where you loved Jesus more, where you more happily made sacrifices in order to serve him better, uh, this may be the book that will help you. But let's face it, Hebrews is a very strange book. I remember the first time I read it, um, I was 20 years of age and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I came back to it a little while later and thought, what did I get out of this book? By the time I got to chapter 7, there was long discussions about Melchizedek and, and uh, how he was like and unlike Jesus. I'd never heard of Melchizedek. Um, there's all these strange discussions. There's really uh, frightening warnings that really do unnerve some Christians and they, there's these really harsh statements about what happens if you walk away from Jesus, if having had your eyes open. And it speaks out as if we're sort of trampling under your feet the blood of the cross is how it describes walking away from Christ. It's a, it's a heavy book, but it's a strange book. And over the next few weeks, we're really going to look at just the first three or four chapters because my understanding of it is if you get the first three or four chapters, you've really got the line of the argument. Then you can work your way through to the end of chapter 13 quite happily. Uh, so my suggestion to, to you would be try and read the book perhaps on the train or the bus in, in, as much as possible in a sitting and just pick up the argument and maybe note down in the margins with a pen things that don't make much sense. I hope you don't have too many question marks and perhaps you can then bring them to EU and we can talk about them perhaps over coffee at the end of the session. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, That's why there are so many suggestions. Uh, It's almost certainly not Paul. I don't waste too much time on this because if you look at chapter 2 verse 3 which should be in the handout you've got it's clear that the person writing this letter is not an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of himself as someone who has heard the truth from others and is handing it on to others, which is a way that the Apostle Paul never speaks of himself. He speaks of himself again and again as appointed by Christ and having witnessed the resurrected Christ. So there are all sorts of possibilities. Uh, Did Apollos write it? Did Aquila write it? Did Priscilla write it? Um, All sorts of possibilities. There's three or four PhDs there for you if you'd like to because there's very little information. We know, for example, though, that it was written by 96 AD. That's the absolute end point because uh, a letter by an early Christian called Clement uh, refers to it and speaks about this letter and interacts with it. So we know that's the latest possible date. And his concern is that these Christians who are getting tired and weary and lax, whose best days lie behind them, who look back at a time when they were fervent and they'd suffered for Jesus, he's very concerned that if they continue to slowly go to sleep, to become more and more casual, in the end they will drift away. He wants them to be passionate and fervent and so we ought to be. Only a dim vision of the heart of Christianity would allow us to be cool-hearted about these things 
I read some years ago about a Christian missionary couple who were captured by communist guerrillas back last century in Malaysia and they spent about two or three weeks with the communist guerrillas who looked after them quite well and they interacted. The missionary, speaking particularly with the leader of the guerrilla group, comparing and contrasting Marxism with the Christian gospel and in the end the missionary was released and these are the last words the Malaysian uh, communist guerrilla leader said to him. He said this, he said, your message is more powerful than ours, your gospel is more wonderful than ours but we will win the day because Jesus means a lot to you but the revolution means everything to me. It's an interesting statement and which the missionary said deeply troubled him, an acknowledgement that the message of Jesus and the message of the gospel and forgiveness was more wonderful than that of Marxism but his conviction that he would win the day because rather than just Christ meaning a lot, the revolution meant everything to him. Well, let's have a look at this, uh, this book together. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, have a look at that first line. Those of you who have read much of the Bible or even some of it will notice it's a very strange way to begin. God. It's not a bad place to begin. Because you know how almost all the letters start, don't they? They start with a greeting. You know? Paul or James or Jude. All the letters except Hebrew and one other begin with, a, with an obvious letter beginning where they talk about who they are and who the person they're writing to is and uh, they wish them some little prayer of uh, grace and peace and mercy be to you. Here, like one John, it's the only other letter like this, he just is straight into it. So there's been some discussion about is this best understood as a letter or perhaps as a sermon that's been written down. A slightly different form, it won't make much difference to us though. But it is unusual the way it goes straight into speaking of God and no greeting. Let me read you the first four verses which is like the overture. God, there's an overture. Ah, this is better. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they have. Uh, These are really jam-packed, aren't they, these verses? It's just a whole lot of... uh, jostling ideas. There's a a certain logic to them. As you know that an overture normally is the opening to a larger piece of music which contains many of the themes that will be played out later on. And if you can say that the first four chapters are then just simply uh, teased out to the end of chapter 13, I think you can almost say that the first four verses here have got much of the letter or much of the substance and heart of it which then get teased out. He speaks of one reality in two halves, the fact that God speaks it's easy for us to take that for granted. It's a wonderful thing to be spoken to by someone, particularly if the person is important, particularly if the person loves you, or perhaps if you love them. But silence, the refusal to speak as a deliberate policy, can be heartbreaking. Here, though, he celebrates the fact that God has spoken in two halves, although it's part of the one reality. God has spoken in the past through the prophets, now it's through the Son, to then, then it was to the fathers, that is to the the ancient people of Israel, the forefathers, but now he says it's to us in his son. 
this is, this is uh, good news in many ways because as mentioned before in chapter 2 verse 3, the writer makes it clear he wasn't there, he's not an eyewitness of Jesus. Yet he still knows that, that the voice of God that came through the Son was to us. So he doesn't say he spoke to the fathers and then he spoke to the apostles. He said that God spoke of old through the prophets but he speaks to us through his Son. He has spoken the words of God through Jesus were not only for those who were there hearing in the first place but to us, speaking of himself at least and those who are reading this letter and us of course in exactly the same situation not eyewitnesses of Jesus but nonetheless he says spoken to by God. Spoken to through the Son this is one of the key terms that's going to come through in this letter in the Son, not a prophet, not a spokesperson there's all the difference in the world being spoken to by a messenger and being spoken to by the only son of someone. Jesus the revealer has come and spoken and there's a number of things it says about him here. Let's have a look at three of them uh, in three types, in three groupings. Firstly in verse 2, what do we know about this son? Well, he's spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. He speaks firstly about the fact that all things, the whole cosmos, Jesus is the heir of it. He will receive it. It is going to be his. So the end and destiny of the universe is that it will all belong to Christ. And then he goes to the beginning of it. So it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Where you're sitting. Air, speaking of the future of the universe, back now to the beginning. And he says that it was actually through him, through the Son, that the Father made everything. Now it's interesting how often those ideas are found together in the New Testament whether it be John or the Apostle Paul in Colossians, they'll often speak of God making the world through Jesus and for Jesus. This is a large statement about anybody, isn't it? To say that, the, why is the whole universe here? Well, it's actually in the end a gift for the Lord Jesus. The physical world, you, ultimately, are made for the Lord Jesus Christ. Made through him and for him. So he is the maker and the heir. He is the alpha and the omega. Jesus Christ is, is, if you like, the bookends of the history of the cosmos. He begins it and he will end it and he holds it all together. He is the one who makes sense of life in God's universe. But he goes on and says even more than that because not only is he kind of the bookends but he's also the shelf. It says in verse 3 that he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's actually the word of Jesus that keeps the universe functioning and running. If he was to withdraw his control and his care, this whole physical world would cease to be, would fall apart. So he's not only the, the beginning and the end, but he's also the thing that upholds it and holds the whole thing together. This is a statement uh, of Jesus which I think is almost without parallel in the claims that are made about people, that Jesus is the one who begins it and the one for whom it all exists. Secondly, in terms of his direct relationship, not this time with the creation, but with the creator, it says in verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. These are two things that are similar. So here it pictures that, that Jesus is kind of the outshining of God's glory, of his essential greatness and godness. If you want to see and experience the, the essential glory and goodness of God, it shines through his Son. So it's not just that he is someone who speaks about God, but actually in him dwells the very nature and being and depths of God. So he's, he is that uh, the light of God shines in and through him. And secondly, an unusual description where it says 
that he's the exact representation of his nature. Now, this is um, going back to the idea of engraving or coin making, that, um, that you take a bit of softish metal and you make a die in harder metal and then you stamp onto the softer metal and out comes the image in reverse that is on the, on the die. And it's, it's, that's the picture. It's saying that in Jesus is this sort of image of God impressed upon him. So God impresses upon the soft human nature of Jesus all the fullness that is him. So you can see, as it were, what God looks like. It's the uh, background to that statement Jesus makes when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, That's the outworking of this reality. So Jesus is the shining of God's light and glory and goodness and he's also the engraving, whereby, again, you can see the very nature uh, of God. And the, the word used there, the exact representation of his nature, the word nature means the basic fundamental reality and essence. All, all it is that makes up God at his depths is in Jesus, not just some passing similarity. It's stamped onto and into him. So, in terms of his relationship with the creation, largish. In terms of his relationship to God, the Father, the Creator, an exact representation and then lastly, it speaks of him in verse, at the end of verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an unusual word used for Jesus' work of dying for us, that he, is, he cleanses us, he purifies us, he depollutes us so that we are okay and clean before God and we can feel okay and clean before God. We are purified, we are depolluted by Jesus and having done that perfectly he then sits down a lot will be made about this later in the book of Hebrews that high priests never get to sit down there's no seats in the temple because their work was never complete constantly offering sacrifices for the constantly repeated sins but Jesus does his one sacrifice and then sits down it's complete so his status is high and his work is successful so that's, that's who we're introduced to in the beginning. Why does he do that? I take it because in the end, as we'll see, this is the great answer to slackness. It's loss of vision of Jesus. It's forgetting who he really is that enables us to take things casually in terms of our relationship with him. And I just want you to think, do you, um, do you believe that about Jesus? Uh, do you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus really was the one through whom God made everything, and that all things in the end will belong to him. Do you really believe that to see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father, the shining light of God's excellence, and that his work is perfect and complete, that the work he does to purify you and to make it possible for you to draw near to God is complete, so you can draw near to God with confidence, which this letter will urge us to do. And then verse 4, not the, I wouldn't have thought the obvious thing for many of us. Uh, would this be the next thing you'd obviously write about Jesus? Having become so much better than the angels, he's inherited a more excellent name than they have. And we have then really a chapter and a half, almost two chapters about the angels. And frankly, I haven't met all that many Christians who are too interested in angels. A guy came to church on Sunday, walked in after the service and said, um, just, he said, how many archangels are there? said, uh, well, there's two that I think we know. There's Gabriel and Michael. Where are they mentioned in the Bible? Um, 
Byron, can you come here and help with this? And um, they went off and looked at Daniel and a few other places. Um, you know, very few of us attempted, for example, to muddle Jesus with the angels. Very few of us are probably tempted to worship angels and perhaps to find angels more interesting than Jesus. I mean, in the New Age, uh, New Age religion, some people are really into angels, but they're not really angels, but they call them angels. But here there's obviously a concern because he's going to speak the next little while about the relationship between Jesus and the angels. This is one of the reasons why Hebrews sometimes can seem a little less than immediately relevant because you're probably not all that vexed about angels. I mean, that guy Ron who came to church on Sunday, he was um, for some reason, but that's rare, I think. But whatever he's saying here is that whatever you think about angels, Jesus is far above them. His status the quality of his work, the measure of his success. He's not an angel, he's the son. And as we'll see later on, the priest. Now, um, we do know from the first century that some Jewish uh, people had, had a sort of an angelic view of the coming Messiah. Uh, there are hints of this in the writings from the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran, that the people had begun to think that the greatness of the Messiah would be that he'd somehow rather be linked with an angel. Because the... the uh, the Jewish people quite understandably and many others today think of angels as far greater than humans. I mean, which is not a bad thought. Really. They, they live in the presence of God in a way that you can't. They see the presence of God. They get sent on direct missions from God. They can sort of appear in the physical realm then move out of it. Uh, they are much more powerful. That again and again when people meet them they're terrified or they feel like worshipping them. So obviously to say that, that Jesus is greater than an angel assumes that he's much greater than a mortal. This is the assumption that if the comparison is not Jesus and you or Jesus and some other guru, but Jesus and an angel, they're speaking about that which is above a human, as uh, Psalm 8 indicates that perhaps that is the case. But there does seem to be a concern here. But I think what we can perhaps work out is if Jesus Christ is substantially more splendid than an angel... Well, then any other human being barely rates to be mentioned in the same sentence because angels are so far above humans. So here we have the overture. Great statements and truths about Jesus. Him as creator, him as the revealer and the one who deals with sin. This is God's final word. See, he has spoken in many ways to the prophets, through the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken once and for all through his son doesn't get any better than that. So if, for example, God was to sort of indicate somehow through some prophetess in the EU or a prophet in here that he was going to speak to us in some new and spectacular way at the Olympic Stadium and suddenly people took it seriously and everyone gathered and suddenly the ordinary people, probably in here, none of us would even get a ticket. All the politicians and the rock stars and the footballers, all the really important people in our culture, they'd all get seats and nurses and other people like that who do serious work, they wouldn't get seats. But you might have to be able to sit outside maybe. And so, but in here, let's imagine it all happens, okay, and everyone's waiting for the night and the time when God's going to come and speak and they're all watching and suddenly this great light show, it's like uh, Close Encounters of Third Kind and really you know, transcendental music and light and suddenly God's... But if we take this sort of passage seriously, what would God say? He would say, Jesus Christ is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
And then, if, as I understand what this is, then the lights would go to your Gospels. Take up and read, take up and read. This is the final word. When God sends his son to live amongst us and to speak to us by both word and deed, you really, that's as good as it gets. So the idea that some people have, like the Baha'i faith would teach this and, and our Muslim neighbours would teach this, that uh, God sends you know, Moses and then these other prophets and then he gets to Jesus and then, um, then he gets to Muhammad, that can only be true that Muhammad is the next step forward if Jesus is nothing like the Son of God. Because in the end, that would be a massive, uh, that would be a massive step backwards. Just to have another prophet after God has sent his son. Well, let's have a look at just uh, briefly at the verses 5 to 14 where you have this ongoing comparison to really put to death any notion that the angels, great and marvellous as they are, are to be compared or, or um, confused with Jesus Christ. We'll move uh, reasonably quickly through this. You can see in the version you've got there the quotes from the Old Testament are in capitals. So this is a great uh, mass of quotes uh, from the Psalms that were revealed to us the truth about angels, wonderful and glorious as they are, and the truth about Jesus, who is infinitely more splendiferous. So let's have a look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is none of them. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have forgotten you? And again, I will be a father to him and he will be like a son to me. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So what he's saying is, he never says to an angel, you're my son. What he does say to the angels is, worship my son. Now that may be at his first coming, or he may actually be speaking about when God brings Jesus Christ into the world again. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. This will be done again that the angels will sing and worship. So far from them being equal, they're never called what Jesus called and in fact they're called to worship the Son. Verse 7. Actually, let's pause on that just briefly. It's, um, it's worth remembering, isn't it, that we're not dealing with Greeks here. I mean, Greeks not sort of in the time of Jesus. These are not people who believed in many gods. These are Jews. These are fierce monotheists. These are people who will die right, to stand up for the fact that there is only one true God. There is one who created and only one who judges and only one who worships. And Isaiah has said again and again around chapters 43, 44, 45, 46, statements like, I am the Lord, there is no other. I will share my glory with none other. Who is like me? Who is to be compared with me? The very first commandment says you're not to worship anyone other than God. And yet here in, this, in the book written by the same God, people are being called to worship the Son. That ought to strike us as very unusual. This is either blasphemy or something wonderfully good about Christ. Chapter, uh, verses 7 to 9, quoting Psalm 100, uh, 104. Verse 7, and the, Of the angels, God says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers as a flame of fire but of the sun he says your throne O God is forever and ever and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom and you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions now this is confusing isn't it this is God speaking of someone else's God 
and yet there is only one God. And he says he won't share his glory with anyone. And yet here God speaks of this other person who can rightly be referred to as God. And Hebrews begins to explain that mystery to us by saying that's the Son. Father, Son and Holy Spirit that make up the one true and living God. But the angels are his servants and his messengers. But the Son can be rightly called God far above any of his companions. Similarly in verse 10, you Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. That's referring back to verse 2. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will all be changed but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Here he draws attention to the eternal nature of Jesus Christ as God the Son. He made all things and when the billions of years or however old the universe is, when it's all completed its task, he will fold up the universe like you may fold up a t-shirt. Some of you may have never done that but you can get a t-shirt and fold it up into a neat little shape and then put it away. And this is is the picture that that, uh, we've got here of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the universe which seems so rock solid and I love seeing the great mountains in the Blue Mountains where they just seem as if they've been there forever. Humans come and go. I sit on the end and I think, you know, Aboriginals sat here once until we borrowed the land from them. And for thousands of years, Aboriginals sort of went through here and sat here. And here I am sitting, admiring the same view. And uh, and yet, really, it's got about a lifespan like a T-shirt. And at at the moment of choosing, Jesus will fold it up and stick it in the Good Samaritan bin. This is an extraordinary picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a loving friend and a wonderful guru, but the God who made the universe who will endure long after it and will put it away when it's finished. Verses 13 to 14, he contrasts the angels serving and Jesus Christ ruling. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? See, Jesus, the Son, is pictured as sitting at the Father's right hand, having accomplished his one great work, while God works things to bring everything under the feet of the Son. The angels, on the other hand, are scurrying around, working working actually for your good. The Bible does have something to say about the angels encamping around those who fear the Lord. And they will interfere and intervene in various ways in our lives. But they are there as his servants and our servants, whereas Jesus instead is on the throne. See, angels, when you understand them and realise that they're real, are magnificent and glorious and if one appeared here, none of you would look at me, in spite of the fact I've worn my most interesting shirt. (laughs) I wore it again this week, I wore it last week because I was going to make an allusion to resurrection, which is why Christians are happy and you wear bright colours. And then I was, uh, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I had more important things to say in the end. But I heard people laughed at the shirt so I thought I would wear it again to give you another chance to snigger. But there you go. I can tell you where to buy it if you like later on. Form an orderly cube. But you see, if, if, if an angel appeared, even a small angel, even not an archangel, 
uh, any glory I have in my appearance would suddenly be pathetic because they are magnificent and their power is overwhelming. And yet compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are nothing. So far from honouring Jesus by comparing him to an angel or even the extreme foolishness of then comparing him positively with other human beings, this is saying he is so much higher than that, so much grander than that, so much more glorious than that, so much worthy of our worship to fall on our knees, to fall even on our faces in prayer at times before him who made all things and who holds all things together and who has purified us. Uh, This is, as I mentioned before, an either-or situation you finish up with. Either the New Testament is bringing us great news about who Jesus Christ is and who God is in Jesus, or it's full of blasphemy and really is a disgraceful book that has taken an ordinary little human, even the best of humans, and just got him completely confused with God, which is a thing that a monotheist will not do lightly. Uh, One of my good friends was living down in Adelaide for some time and he was... uh, at hospital because his daughter had very bad asthma and she had a severe attack and he was at hospital in the middle of the night and there was another anxious father there who was a Muslim man from Southeast Asia who was doing his PhD at Adelaide University and they began to talk. They had a few hours and um, Jason made the point about Jesus Christ being God's son and uh, this man bristled. He said, I will never believe that the great God who made the universe could even have a son let alone that a human being could ever be called his son. And uh, he said, I will never believe it. Now, I thought when Jason told me what I would have said was, oh, that's brilliantly open-minded. That would have been my gentle attack. Brilliant. I will never believe. Instead of saying, show me the evidence. Which I thought. But Jason, I think, was nudged along by the Holy Spirit and said something much cleverer. Jason's, and I don't think he's like clever normally, but but, uh, that's why I think it was the Holy Spirit. But um, the Reverend Jason uh, said to him... um, you're dead right, you know. You understand, he said, something that most Australians haven't got the faintest clue about. He said, you understand what the, what the monotheistic Jews understood about Jesus when they heard him claiming to be the Son of God, uh, worthy of honour like the Father, etc. He said, you understand that if that isn't true, it is blasphemy. He said, most Australians have no idea who God is, no idea of the greatness of God, the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, the fearfulness of God, that he's not just your mate with huge biceps and a loving heart, but he's actually completely other than us, terrifying in power, white hot with purity. And to actually say that a human being, or as another man said to me, that God's son was born from between the legs of a woman, this is a particular way that this guy put it, never, he said, blasphemy. Well, I think they're right on the options. Either it is just foolish, thoughtless blasphemy or Jesus Christ is so far above anybody else has ever lived on the planet. And that's why it's significant that we've got the Gospels. You can go back and look at the man and work out what category does he belong in? Half angel, half human? The very best of humans? Or somehow truly man and yet truly God? Uh, I can imagine that what happens in our culture is that this confidence gets sort of slowly eroded. Just, you sit in a tutorial, whether it's religious studies or history or something, and you've got a, a friendly tutor and uh, you've made some comment, it's obvious that you're a Christian, and you've got another member of the class who's obviously from Islamic culture and, and is Muslim, and uh, you know, your tutor turns to you and says, now, um, 
why are you uh, you're a Christian? Yes. Um, why are you a Christian? Well, I believe it's true. Uh, were your parents Christians? Yes, they were. So you just believe basically what your parents believe. No, I believe it for myself. I believe it's true. Uh, Ahmed, tell us, um, are you, what religion are you? I'm a Muslim. I mean, were your parents Muslim? Yes. Are you a Muslim just because they... No, I believe it to be true. I'm convinced it's true. And the tutor says, you see, you're both convinced, but it really is just about your culture. And you're not quite sure how to answer. But what can happen is you just get this slow erosion on your confidence about who Jesus is. And it just seems foolish and silly and really you've got to just realise that he's just a great prophet. You may want to argue with your Muslim friend whether he's the first greatest or the second greatest. But in the end, it just happens slowly and we lose our vision and our confidence in who Jesus is and slowly Jesus is shrunk. I think the the tendency in human beings is not to uh, evolve a ridiculously high view of Jesus who is really just a rabbi and we elevate him to God. I think the movement is almost always the other way. We bring him back from the unique position, back to the ordinary. And Hebrews says you need to see the utter distinctiveness of Jesus. He is not like even an angel, but he is in fact the creator. And that's why Hebrews will keep bringing us back to this question of Jesus, his status and his work, his person and the performance he does as the one who dies. Because in both, he is outstandingly above anyone else. He completes forgiveness and pardon and he is the one and only Son of God. That's the purpose of this introductory chapter here, to begin to nail that down, the utter supremacy of Jesus. Well, let's finish this by looking at the first couple of verses of chapter 2, which really tells us to so what. It's really helpful when the Bible doesn't leave you to wander around thinking, now I wonder what the significance of this might be. Oh, that's okay, that's fun. But here you're told. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. When you ask the question, what is the book of Hebrews trying to do? What's its purpose? I think the passages like this, which happen again and again through the book, let us know what the purpose of the book is. That the things that he teaches us about Jesus and about the way that he relates to the angels and to Moses and to Joshua and to Melchizedek, all those things are all trying to teach us in order to safeguard us, in order to fill us with passion and joy as Christian people so we don't get weary and slack and slow down and eventually stop. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 12. We'll just have a look at how, if you've got a Bible there. I'll read it if you haven't. This um, urging to action. Just have a listen to these. 3, verse 12 whole lot of theology taught and then he says take care brethren lest there should be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God chapter 4 verse 1 therefore let us fear lest while the promise remains of entering his rest any of you should seem to have come short of it verse 11 
Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. And then if you go to chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, and chapter 12, verses 1 through to 13, verse 19, there are these long passages urging us to appropriate action and urgent action. And there's two sorts of commands given. One is don't move from the truth. Don't go backwards. And the other is to go forward. You'll find as you read through Hebrews there are things to stand firm, maintain your position and other calls to draw near and to move forward and to press on. A bit like a ratchet. You ever done those things where you climb up those ropes with those weird... I've only done it once and once was enough. Climbing out of some lovely cave in God's beautiful <laughs> earth and you have these things that you do with, with these ropes that, that they hang onto it so that as far as you get up it won't come back. But then you wait for a while and then you get a bit more strength in your arms, you move that one up another half a metre and then it hangs on and up you go. It's, uh, the, the call is to be like that, to have a sort of a ratchet in your spiritual life. Whatever you do, don't go backwards. Don't lower your view of Jesus. Don't lower your commitment to love. Don't lessen you know, your commitment to the Christian community, which you'll come back to in chapter 10. Right? Don't go backwards. In fact, keep moving slowly forward is the way forward and the way to safety. So what he says here, which is the first of these passages of, of uh, exhortation to move forward, he says, both a positive and a negative, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, right, to this message of Jesus. Right. So they already know it. These guys have been Christians for some time. But he's saying we must, we must pay not just closer attention, but much closer attention to really give the words of Jesus, the words that come to us through the eyewitnesses, the apostles, really close attention. Nothing careless, nothing slap happy about the way that we handle God's word. But we listen and look with all our focus and energy we find the best times in the week and the best times in the day in which to engage with God's word, to hear, to pay careful attention. I know some wise Christians who even go to bed early on the night before they go to church. Or if that's not able, they make sure they have a really good sleep in on the morning before they go to church. Who actually work out to make sure that when they arrive at the point they're going to be studying the word of God together, they're awake. So they've got a bit of a chance to really take it in. He's saying here, pay very careful attention. Nothing easy going. No taking the grace of God to mean I can be slack in this area and work hard in other areas. But to pay very careful attention because the danger is, as it says there, that you may drift away. So he says, if you don't pay careful attention to what you've heard, you will slowly, imperceptibly drift away. I, have, I had a nightmare the other day. I, I have a... I, I like going in this little boat fishing and I had this weird nightmare that I was fishing off South Head and something went wrong with the anchor rope and I had people who were precious to me in the boat and we were just drifting onto the rocks at which point I woke up. I'm a coward. I don't want to resolve this. I just want to get out of it. <laughs> I woke up. But that was my nightmare, you see, because I was just drifting. And the trouble with drifting is when it starts, you often don't notice. So if you don't tie a boat up, it doesn't roar out of the bay in a hurry. It just moves out slowly, imperceptibly, but given enough time and it's disappeared. And this is the way that most people who in the end sadly betray Christ, they they don't move out in a hurry. There may come a moment where they make a decision that clearly says, I now turn my back to the Lord Jesus. I now trample on his blood, as Hebrews says. But it will have come through a slow drift first before it is revealed in one clear action. 
One of the most dreadful shipwrecks off Sydney Harbour, as you know, was the Dunbar, which just drifted in a, in a days of sailing boats, etc. It just couldn't get to where it needed to get and came, out, came out, um, in at the gap. There was one sole survivor. The Bible speaks of people making shipwreck of our faith. And here, you see, is, is God's warning. If you will pay close attention to what you've heard, give it focused, energetic attention. I mean, this is part of the great blessing that you have in, say, going to something like Ancon this year. To go away and actually give five or six days to really pay attention to God's word. To get your mind and heart working on God's word in a way that you may have never done it before. To really think through with real focus and energy and help the truths of God rather than just drifting carelessly. Now, by the way, if you can't go to Ancon, I'm not saying therefore you're about to drift away, but it's, it's that sort of thing And you'll know whether or not you are in danger of drifting, whether or not you've become fairly careless about the reading of the Bible rather than carefully trying to hear what God is saying. Because as he says, if if those who heard the word of God that came through angels, speaking about what happened at Mount Sinai, where the the Jews understood that angels were involved in that transaction between God and Moses and Israel, if, if the ones who heard the word of God through angels and responded badly, if it was serious for them, how much worse if when God has sent his only son to speak, if we make shipwreck of ourselves. So the call here is, if you want to enjoy, if you want to move forward, if you want to move safely and passionately through your life as Christian, here as it says here, to make sure that we pay close attention to what God has said to us and don't become careless and slack. Let me read to you from one of the greats in, uh, in Christian history, a man called John Wesley. Written when he was well into his... Uh, middle to old age. He says this, I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way and for this very end he came down from heaven and he has written this down in his book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. If I have it, here is knowledge enough for me. He understands the seriousness of our life, of our brief stay. And he says, God has come, told us, written it down in the book for us. We need to pay careful attention to what we've heard. And this book, and if I can conclude on this book, this book will uh, be part of the warming us up and the keeping us focused. Because in the end, this book moves to chapter 12, where many of you all know that great statement where it says, let us run the race set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. This writer knows that in the end, passion and health as God's people comes from having our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know that, many of you. It's not focusing on anything else, but it's keeping our attention upon Jesus Christ. One of the most brilliant men I ever had the pleasure of dealing with uh, when he was buried some years ago, uh, when they had this big public celebration of Thanksgiving for his life and they had the family burial. As old Broughton Knox was loaded into the ground, they sang, apparently, the song which he'd asked them to sing, which is that old kiddie's song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now of all the things that a very intelligent man could have chosen to have sung as his last hymn, the picture of a kid's song, because in the end there's the essence that this book says. In the end, and this book will do it for us, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, deeper and deeper into him, to know his glory, his splendiferousness, and to rejoice in it.
and don't confuse him whether it be angel or prophet that he alone is the son whose sacrifice makes us clean. And next week we'll see how that works out as prophet, uh, sorry, as priest and human. How about if I pray then we'll go. Father, uh, thank you for having sent your son through whom you made all things and into whose hands all things will end up belonging. Uh, We thank you for having taught us something of him and we pray this week you would help us to live with our eyes fixed upon him and you may even use us to keep our brothers and sisters focused upon him. So we pray that you would uh, inspire us and empower us to live this day well. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Ian. Uh, As he mentioned, uh, we will be back uh, again next week uh, looking at Hebrews. Uh, Can I suggest that uh, as Ian mentioned, that uh, sometime in the next week that uh, you read through the book of Hebrews uh, and familiarise yourself with it. Uh, if you have any comments or questions,